Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Merry Christmas. The scripture reading on what will be Christmas morning is Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. This is Spock talking right after the fact that there is going to be a time of darkness, but it won't be a darkness like what has been the case. And instead, there's actually going to be a light that ends up coming. And the light that ends up coming, the end of all sorts of warfare, has to do with a child being born. But as is clear, it's not just any child. This is a a classic Christmas passage of the prophesying of the birth of Jesus. It's really connected to the other classic Christmas passage in Isaiah, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it particularly is relevant to the way that John in his prologue talks about light coming and light dawning. So in that regard, we look at Isaiah 9 and read verses 2 through 7, where the scripture reads, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. 4. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 13 today. Last week, as we began studying the first 18 verses of John in our mini-series on the Incarnation, we looked at the creative activity, the fact that the Word was the agent of creation because He's always been 
always been in intimacy with the Father as a distinct person of the same nature. And in such, we also learned that as the song just said, he gives light and life to all men, because in him there is life that is the light of men. That's true in creation, and there's hints in the verse five verses of that being true in our salvation and redemption. And after this sustained treatment on the word, we then read in verses six to 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, we do thank you that your son was born. Born such that he can give us life and light. Born such that he can give us a second birth. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to rejoice, both in the fact that he was born, that he was made flesh, as well as in what his death and resurrection ultimately accomplished for us and the work of the Spirit in our lives to bring us such that we can cry out today, Abba, Father. Help us to rejoice in these realities, to understand them greater, and may everything that we think about today, whether it's new information or something we've known for a while, may it cause us to worship you just as we should always do. So, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's imagine for a moment that we're walking into a camp cabin at 7 a.m. Now, if you'd prefer, the whole point of it being a camp cabin is also that there's a lot of people sleeping on the beds. So if there's another context in which that makes more sense for you, maybe all the grandchildren coming in to stay in one bedroom, you can think in that regard. But as you come in at 7 a.m., you turn the lights on. And immediately there are then going to be two different responses. Some people are going to be very happy. They were sitting there feeling like they had to stay in bed so as not to wake up anyone else, but trying to figure out how to keep themselves entertained without any light. And others are going to push against it. They're going to put their head into their pillow. They're going to put their blankets over their head try to make it so that they don't find that light. 
the light has at the very least revealed the extreme differences between the individuals that are present. And so it is too when the true light comes into the world, dividing humanity into two different classes. And that's what John primarily teaches us today. But he begins by talking about a man sent from God. Now, as long as I remember today, we're going to refer to the author of the book of John, not as John, but as the evangelist. Not because the author isn't John, but because there's another John that's going to be in the text prominently this week. And I want us to be a little bit more clear about which John's question. So John the baptizer will be John, and John the author will be the evangelist. A man sent from God, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. This is a abrupt transition. Verses 1 through 5 are sustained treatment and a poetic mastery that focuses on the pre-existence and now incarnate word. In verses 3 to 5, it even gets so far as the subject of the next line being included in the line that precedes it, that's right before it. All things are made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There is a man sent from God, whose name was John. So much sustained treatment, and then... And then there was a man. It causes one to wonder why John matters to the evangelist's understanding of the word. Why is John being presented at this point in time so abruptly into the narrative? And verse 6 doesn't directly give us an answer. The evangelist tells us that there was this man and he was sent from God. So we have a divine agency that this man is not just doing things because he thinks he needs to do them, but he was specifically sent from God, and his name is John. And we get a little bit of a, a hint of something that, to our minds as readers of the entire Gospel of John in the past, is fairly obvious. This John is not the same person, or even of the same nature, as the Word. In the beginning was the word is a lot different than there was a man sent from God. We still then only have further question of what is this divinely appointed ministry and what does it have to do with the word? And so we keep reading. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. 
Now, this is the point of the divine sending of verse 6, but the evangelist has shifted to discuss more the human agency at work. Now, instead of a man being sent, a man is coming. But John is coming for a witness. Some translations here you might have as a witness, but there is something intelligent about that subtle difference to say for a witness. Because the evangelist's point is not that he simply came and he happened to witness and testify, but that the very purpose for which he came was to bear witness and testify of the light. And as we know that the light is synonymous with the life that inheres within the word itself, himself, we now see why his ministry is related to the word. His ministry is related to pointing to the word to prepare the way even in that regard. But even that is only part of his purpose as he bears witness for the further purpose that all men through him might believe. Light can have a divisive effect where some accept and some reject. And John's ministry, his bearing witness, he was sent from God and he came for the purpose of bearing witness to the light so that there'd be more who would accept and fewer that would reject. We're following what is typical custom of referring to gospel writers as evangelists. But the author isn't the only one who's doing evangelizing work. John the baptizer here also is being evangelistic, spreading the good news, bearing witness to the light so that all men through him might believe. But just so we don't get confused, the evangelist adds again in verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. John is not the light. John is not the word. There's not just a distinction to be made, but a difference in that. But his work is necessary to make ready for when the light truly comes. In one form or another, all four Gospels, whether they include something about the incarnation or the particular birth of Jesus, they all begin public ministries, not with Jesus, but with John's. They do this not just because John's ministry proceeds, but also that fact that John's ministry proceeds is vital to the expectation around the Messiah. The Messiah was to come with a forerunner. Today we will look just at Malachi 3.1 in that regard. Malachi has a dispute structure. Yahweh comes and makes an accusation to the Israelites, and they respond with a question declaring their innocence in some way. And in particular, Malachi 3.1 comes as an answer to their claim that there is no God of judgment, that those who do evil are in fact pleasing in God's sight. 
His response is that he is delayed a judgment. It is still coming. And he begins that in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So before the Lord whom they seek comes to the temple, there is a messenger that Yahweh sends to prepare the way before Yahweh. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. There is a man sent from God, whose name was John. The stage is fully set for the light to come, indeed for Yahweh to come, and in particular the person of the divine word. And so we turn to verse 9, the true light comes. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now that King James and the New King James speak of light being just that is the true light that he's bearing witness to, and that it lights every man who as they come into the world, it shines upon all men and leaves it at that. But if we actually look at the rest of John. This expression about coming into the world is his natural and common way of referring to Jesus entering into the world in the incarnation. Let's turn to John 6, 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Or 9.39, and Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not they see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Or 11.27, she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And we could keep going, but I think we get the point. This is a common way of expressing coming into the world, such that we probably have a right reason to think that the ESV and other modern translations are correct to instead say, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now in Verse 7, we heard of this light that John was bearing witness to, that there was a hope that all men would believe. So although in first, uh, verse 4 and 5, there was a question of whether the light was just the light of creation by which we have natural life. Now it's very clear that this light is an illumination, a revelation, an explanation of salvation, in which we have true spiritual Abundant, eternal life. And it says that this light 
lights upon, shines upon every man. If you take this as being every man without exception, you have a possibility of universalism, or you at least have an expectation that John is saying that all hear the gospel. And it's more likely that as is true in lots of places in scripture, it's talking about every man without distinction. Or that the light comes to those who aren't qualified for it. There is no need to be a Jewish people. You don't need to be qualified to receive it. Which is only logical since no one, none of us, none of the disciples, none of the Old Testament saints could actually be qualified for it. Now, if that is the point, you'd say most, uh, most relevant, you'd be thinking Jew versus Gentile. But even within the rest of the New Testament, we'd have reason to point out that there's no exclusion to women, though they might have been excluded in New Testament context, in historical context. There's no exclusion to tax collectors, what profession you have, no exclusion to the perceivably worse sinners. That the beauty of the gospel light is that since none of us are qualified for it, none of us could possibly be excluded or disqualified for it. Since none can deserve, and that's the whole point of the gospel, any can accept. So this true light, Jesus, the word made flesh, comes into the world. The light shines because the light came. The light shines because Jesus has taken upon himself a human nature and has been born. But especially given that we've already had verses 6 to 8 where John's public ministry of bearing witness to the light has been mentioned, it's also possible that John the evangelist is hinting at the fact that Jesus' public ministry has also dawned. Matthew 4, 12-17 does describe the public ministry of Jesus as light dawning in the darkest of places. But either way, the whole of the incarnation is a light then shining in the darkness that continues to shine today as we read about it in Scripture. The light has come. There's been the preparatory work of John bearing witness to the light. Now Jesus, the true light, has come into the world. But how will men respond? Since light can be so divisive, what will that response be? Verses 10 to 13. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Lights come into the world. So let's talk about the world and what the world does with that light. Verse 10, John tells us three things about the world in relationship to the light. And he likely isn't just referring to the world as in the whole universe created by the word. Throughout the Gospel of John, he more likely seems to be using the term world to refer to the realm of human affairs. To us, humanity, and how we go in a day-to-day life. And he says about that, that the light was in it. In the world, he was. He also says that the world was made by this light. And at this point, we have high expectations then of what the world would know. The world has every reason to accept the light that's in it. And indeed, we owe our existence to him. And yet the third thing the evangelist tells us about the world and the light is that the world knew him not. The world didn't recognize the creator when it came, when he came. The world didn't recognize him as the word, the life, and the light. But a letdown to how the light is received when he comes into the world. The letdown doesn't immediately let up either. He says, verse 11, the evangelist shifts from the world generally to his own. We get similar results. His own reference to the Jewish people tells us two things about that. And the first is that the light came unto his own. The fact that they are his own, that they are related to him. The fact that as we know from the rest of scripture, including our scripture reading, and even the rest of John, that they were anticipating a messianic light to come, a prophet and Christ that should come into the world, gives us all the more reason to expect that they would respond rightly. But he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They didn't extend the welcome to him either. Regardless of whether they didn't extend the welcome to him because they didn't recognize him, or if they had their own reasons, even sinister reasons for failing to respond to him, the evangelist has told us very clearly that the whole of the world population and the whole of the Jewish population, I shouldn't say the whole, but the majority of the world population and the majority of the Jewish population by and large rejected him. What a disappointing way to begin talking about the words incarnation and public ministry. But we do have reason to thank God, both generally and then specifically for how it pertains to us, that verse 11 
is not the end. And if we really look into it, we actually have reason to thank God that the world by and large and his own by and large did not receive him. Because as they push against him and fight against the light and cover their eyes with blankets or a pillow in order not to look at the light, they ultimately push him to his death, to the cross. And in pushing him to the cross, all who accept him ultimately do have life. But we get ahead of the Gospel of John. Verses 12 to 13 show the alternative response. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Like verses 6 to 7, these two verses describe a human and divine agency in one particular act. A particular act that we are right to call conversion. Sometimes we also refer to it as getting saved. The accepting of Jesus as a personal savior. And the evangelist starts with the human agency in verse 12. Yes, there is by and large rejection. But as we know by being in this room, gathered together in order to worship Jesus and to celebrate together the birth of Jesus, not all reject. But as many as received him, whether Jew or Gentile, whether young or old, whether male or female, whether respected or disdained in the community, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God. To those of us who welcomed him, he has given us the right, the power, the authority to become the children of God. This is beautiful. And it's something we definitely shouldn't rush at because it's a brilliant blessing to us, but also because it shines so much of who Jesus is. He gives life and light to all men because he has life and light in himself. As the evangelist will directly share in verses 14 to 18, he is the only begotten Son of God. Therefore, we can say in verse 12, he has the right to share and give us the right to have many come sons of God. In his book, Gospel People, in his explanation of John 1, 12 through 18, or even 1 to 18. Michael Reeves explains the subtle shift that happens right here 
where no longer is it just about the word and the light, but Jesus also as the exclusive identity as the Son of God. He hints here, he explicitly states it later. The word, the distinct person of God, with God the Father, but also God the Father's unique Son, his only begotten Son. Michael Reeves writes, What sort of being could give that blessing of adoption? Only one who is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only the only God who is at the Father's side. John has thus affirmed for Christ an identity shared by no human teacher or savior figure in any other belief system in the world. And on that identity, the gospel stands. If Christ does not have this unique identity, he does not have the ability to bring us into the bosom of the Father. A mere creature could never share with us what he himself had never known. But as he is the only begotten Son of God, as indeed John even uses different Greek words to refer to Jesus as the Son, as opposed to we as the children of God, that even when we are adopted and brought into that, there's still a uniqueness and exclusiveness to his identity as the only begotten Son of God. He gives us the right to be adopted, to be able to cry out, Abba, Father, to know the Father with the same intimacy and relationship to not be continually separated because of our sin. Instead, he takes that sin upon himself, dies, to give us the right to be the sons of God. As 1 John 3, 1-3 indicates, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's amazing and beautiful that in Christ, we not only depend upon God, not only depend upon the word for our very life and light, but we are brought into familial intimacy with the triune God. So that the sin that separates us, separates us no more. 
Behold, what manner of love the Father hath given unto us. The rest of verse 12 gives a further definition of receiving him. Not knowing him, not recognizing him is parallel to not receiving him. And now receiving him, welcoming him is parallel to believing in his name. It's not just a belief that he exists. Connecting it to belief in his name, the evangelist hints that we're believing in his character and that we are fully entrusting ourselves to him. So instead of trusting ourselves for our future and for our eternal fate, we trust him, the only begotten son who died and rose for us. We're welcoming him by faith and putting him into the driver's seat. We're giving a full surrender to him, to his purposes, to his trust. The problem, of course, is we can't trust ourselves in this regard because we sin. And we can't seem to stop it. We sin and we sin and we sin, 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 sin. We need a Savior different from us and we need a Savior who is not a mere creature, but who has the exclusive identity as God the Son, becoming flesh and dying to take it. Take our sin, take the punishment, to take the wrath of God rightly against us. And Jesus, the Son of God, by dying in that way, gives us the right of adoption to those of us who believe. Brothers and sisters today, rejoice. The beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of Christmas is not so much wrapped up in the fact that there was a birth in Bethlehem, but that there was a death outside Jerusalem. The beauty of Christmas is Good Friday and Easter. That he came for the purpose of dying and rising again so that we would have the right to be son, become sons of God and not be hostile, alienated from God, and only destined for destruction. And if there's anyone here that doesn't have that hope, you can't rightly say that you're my brother and sister in that regard. You haven't believed in his name. You haven't welcomed him by faith. Don't delay. Recognize him as the word of God the Father from before the world began. Recognize him as the unique son of God, only begotten. And entrust yourself not to your own sinfulness, not to any attempts at being righteous, but to his death and resurrection. That is our only hope. Come to him in faith. At the same time of that human agency involved in our accepting him, there is also the divine agency at work in verse 13. Now, if you are an unbeliever today. I don't want you to be too confused by the divine agency. It happens at the same time as the thing that's involved in the human activity just described, such that you don't have to worry 
about if you do that reality of believing in your Chalconium him by faith as to whether you're saved or not. But we get a beautiful and more cause of worship, more cause of thanksgiving in regard to the divine work in that conversion of verse 13. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, sorry, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here there's a discussion of how men are begotten, how they are fathered. And the evangelist makes it very clear that it's not by any human initiation. It's not of blood, not the mixing of bloodlines, nor anything to do with being of the race of Israel. It's more important to be connected to the faith of Abraham than the line of Abraham. It's not of the will of the flesh. There's no sexual desire or any other human plan that makes someone begotten in this way, nor is it of the will of a male, of a husband. It's not because a male had a plan. But no, this begottenness is from above. This begottenness is from God. This is what John is telling Nicodemus about in John 3. You must be born again. You must be begotten from above by God the Holy Spirit. We've come to call this the new birth, the regeneration of the spirits. We've come to understand this as being born again. God is at work in us so that the spirit begets in us, fathers us to new life. And so we have the opportunity to truly say that we are the sons of God. And we have more reason to give thanks to God because we are even more dependent upon him for the familial intimacy for which we so desire and so love and delight in. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us indeed, that we should be called the children of God, and indeed we are. Father, I do thank you for the gift of your Son and the gift of your Spirit, so that I am here and we are here, able to rejoice not just in being dependent upon you, but being brought to you to be in familial intimacy with you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done cause us to continue to rejoice in this and to worship you in light of this. I pray, Lord, in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, Sermons from the Pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. 
Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?